Hello, this is Jennifer Wolf. I'm the Executive Director of the International Association of Industrial Accident Boards and Commissions. You're listening to the IAIABC's podcast, Accidentally, where we discuss issues and events impacting workers' compensation systems. During Accidentally, I ask thought-provoking questions, raise awareness of emerging issues, and offer insights on workers' compensation. My hope is to make you think about workers' comp in a different way. You can listen or download our podcast each month at iaiabc.org slash podcast, or even better, subscribe to us on iTunes. For this month's podcast, I wanted to share a history lesson. In November 1970, Congress passed the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Act, which established the National Commission on State Workers' Compensation Laws. The enactment of OSHA, which established federal authority over safety regulation, and the National Commission, which was designed to examine state workers' compensation systems, significantly shaped the next 50 years of our industry. As I was reflecting on this anniversary, it made me think about the history and foundational elements of the system. I sheepishly will admit that this is something I enjoy. My office bookshelf houses the proceedings of the IAIABC's annual conferences going back to 1916, and in those volumes, I find wisdom and answers. So here are thoughts I wanted to share as I once again revisited the history of the workers' compensation system. Civil justice arises from violence and tragedy. That really is the foundation of workers' compensation in the United States. We live in an unprecedented time. How many of us have said or thought that this year? But this phrase could have easily been said during the time that the first workers' compensation laws were considered and adopted in the United States. The early decades of the 20th century were full of turmoil. Immigration and migration were giving rise to large urban centers. An agrarian lifestyle was giving way to industry, people working in factories, mines, and construction. Railroads were connecting this vast country from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And all of these changes collectively were transforming where and how people lived and worked. It's also important to remember that this was a time of civil unrest. There was rising wealth inequality and tension between labor and management was high. There was bombings at labor demonstrations, gun violence during strikes, disruption of railroad traffic, and standoffs between labor and management across the country. This was creating an environment of deep distrust and resentment. 
And during this time, workers were suffering. We see this most starkly in the publication of the Pittsburgh survey. And the Pittsburgh survey was an important work which studied a typical industry town. It looked at Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. And the survey includes six volumes, and it, it studies all aspects of society, from immigration to women's issues to housing. Perhaps the most important work of this survey was the text, Work Accidents and the Law. And I want to take a moment to acquaint you with Crystal Eastman. She is an often unknown or forgotten figure, but she played an important role in shaping labor rights throughout the 20th century. Miss Eastman was a leading voice for labor rights and advocate for increased occupational safety. Her empirical analysis of the impact that work accidents had on not just individual lives, but also on the loss of economic activity from a community perspective, was really a powerful change agent. Eastman studied, counted, and recorded injuries and fatalities in Allegheny County over the course of a year. And she studied the effect that those injuries had on families, their employers, and the community, and made the remarkable assertion that these lives lost were not just individual tragedies, but that they were restricting, holding back the economic potential of Allegheny County. Work accidents and the law also charted the challenges that employers during this time faced. Employers could, at the time, purchase an accident insurance liability policy, which would pay benefits in the event of a workplace injury. However, these cases were often heavily litigated, and a significant portion of the award benefits were often used to pay attorneys and legal proceedings. Legislatures in the early 20th century recognized that this was a tinderbox, and in response, they formed committees, councils, and commissions to study a more equitable and predictable system. Many of these groups looked to Germany, who had adopted an accident insurance program under Chancellor Otto von Bismarck in the 1880s. And it was these groups of men, representing the varied interests of labor and management, who spent years negotiating a system that would be adopted as workers' compensation. And it was this very process of bringing together labor, management, and policymakers, which formed and paved the way for the grand bargain. The grand bargain is a recognition that workers and employers could be equally served through public policy. And at this time, the idea that government could play a role like this was revolutionary. And I think looking back on it, we would say it was pretty visionary. 
And the grand bargain is important because it has truly shaped the foundation, but also the last 100 years of the workers' compensation system. And I think it's really important to note that the grand bargain is a fragile balance between labor and management, but I view it as something more. The grand bargain also includes and involves policymakers. And this element is a reminder that society is impacted by the cost, both from an economic but also from a community aspect of work injuries, illnesses, and deaths. And the grand bargain codified as workers' compensation is recognition that society should play a role, policy should play a role in reducing and aiding recovery from these workplace injuries. And so the grand bargain was something that was critical to the foundation of workers' compensation. And throughout the past 100 years and a couple, we have continuously reshaped and reformed and reimagined that bargain. And so how has the grand bargain survived? Through modest and incremental change to the system. The desire for consensus building in workers' compensation has always been strong. And because of that, it has really resulted in a history that has only a few periods of disruptive change. And as I talk about some of the change and the reshaping of that bargain, I do think it's important to recognize that it's really hard to tell the history of the workers' compensation system across the United States because, in fact, there are more than 50 different histories. But I do want to highlight some significant changes that have had a national impact. Some change came from external events. In the 1940s, more than 671,000 veterans were returning home wounded as a result of World War II. And there was concern and caution from both labor and management about how these individuals would reintegrate into the workforce. Employers were worried that if these individuals were injured at their job, that their impairment awards would be more expensive. Labor was worried that veterans who had a impairment or a disability would be disadvantaged and be less desirable in the, in the labor market. And so together with policymakers, they developed a solution. And in the, the mid-1940s and throughout the 1950s, second injury funds were developed in states across the country, which would ensure that employers were not responsible for the added cost of hiring an impaired employee. These funds were an important part of the system in addressing a real challenge to the U.S. economy as a result of World War II. One of the thorniest issues within the workers' compensation system, and we are in the midst of continuing this conversation, is how the system 
or if the system compensates for occupational disease. Most of the first work comp programs were designed to cover injuries caused by accidents, and and we see that even in the IAIABC's name, the Industrial Accident Boards. And so there was a belief that diseases were outside of the scope of the system. However, unlike second injury funds, which were instituted because of external circumstances, many legislatures through the years recognized that there were certain diseases, certain occupational illnesses, which were directly related and linked to work. And therefore, they expanded coverage for occupational diseases through specific changes to the law. Throughout the 1960s, labor in particular was increasingly vocal about the inadequacy of state workers' compensation programs. They believed both coverage of workers and benefits provided to those workers was failing to promote safety or provide adequate compensation for injuries, diseases, or deaths that occurred at work. Quite simply, labor during that time believed that workers' compensation was not fulfilling its promise. And so, as a result of this, uh, and in a significant break from the state-based labor management-centered system, President Richard Nixon created the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which authorized federal authority for safety and called for a national commission which would study state workers' compensation laws. The National Commission report found state systems were both inadequate and insufficient in compensating for work injuries, illnesses, and fatalities. As a result of the National Commission report, many states were very worried that the National Commission would recommend federal control of workers' compensation. But given the makeup of the committee, which was largely Republican appointees, it shied away from that topic and that specific recommendation. Instead, the commission published an extensive list of recommendations, including 19 that they deemed were essential. And the 19 essential recommendations were largely related to removing exclusions for coverage so that it would expand workers' compensation coverage to uh, more workers across the United States. And The other bent of some of the 19 essential recommendations was to create minimum benefit levels for wage replacement. As a response to the National Commission and really to to fend off uh, federal intrusion into state systems, there was a flurry of legislative activity across the United States. And this state activity was largely seen as expanding coverage and benefits. Regulators, wary of increasing business costs, however, because of the expansion of coverage and benefits, had kept workers' compensation rates low throughout the late 1980s and early 1990s. And this resulted in a competitive insurance market 
market that was on the brink of collapsing in many states. And so in the 1990s, there were significant state reforms who sought to rebalance the system to ensure affordability for employers. Over the last 20 years, there has been stability and predictability in most workers' compensation systems. The focus of regulatory policy has largely been on healthcare delivery, aligning policy, procedure, and payment of healthcare services to achieve optimal outcomes for injured workers. So throughout each of these changes and each of these periods in the workers' compensation system, states have created both formal and informal ways to engage labor and management in the change process. And that adherence to the philosophy of the grand bargain has served the system well. The grand bargain isn't a document that was written down at the first workers' compensation um, debates or discussions. It's not something that we can go back and reference. Instead, it is a constantly evolving conversation. And I would argue that this grand bargain and the act of continuously engaging labor management and policymakers has created some significant benefits for the workers' compensation system. It has first and foremost created a system that is financially sound. It is the only social insurance system that does not have the only social insurance system in the United States that does not have concerns over solvency. This process, the grand bargain, has also helped to insulate the system to some extent from politics, especially in those states that have a strong labor and management advisory process. There are not large reform efforts when one party or the other comes into power. The who, what, and where of work has changed dramatically since the early 1900s, and we're continuing to see that evolution even today. And so engaging labor and management in the process of changes to workers' compensation has allowed the system a mechanism to adapt to that those changes in our workforce, in our workplace, and our workers themselves. So now that we've looked a little bit about at the history of workers' compensation and how the grand bargain has shaped the system and continues to shape the system. What can we say about the future of the system and the future of the grand bargain? Will workers' compensation continue to be shaped by balancing the interest of labor management in collaboration with policymakers? Without intention, I believe it could be a threat. One of the biggest concerns is who speaks for employees. In the past, labor, organized labor, gave voice to the concerns and demands of workers. 
Today, only 6.5% of the private labor force is represented by a private union. And workers' compensation is no longer on the national agenda for the AFL-CIO. In one way, workers' compensation in this respect has been a product of its own success. The continued decline of injury rates, less than three per 100 full-time workers, has lessened the need for compensation and the workers' compensation system. And so we see that health care coverage and paid family leave have become more urgent needs for more workers. How the system creates a mechanism to amplify employee voices is important and needed in the future. At the same time, we see more and more businesses without employees. The past 30 years have witnessed businesses utilizing workers outside of traditional employment contracts. From on-call to temporary to gig workers, these arrangements have exposed gaps in the social safety net, including more workers who are excluded from workers' compensation coverage. This issue has recently come to sort of a public forum in California with the referendum of Proposition 22 on the November 2020 election ballot. And Proposition 22 was adopted, which means that transportation network drivers like Uber and Lyft drivers can and will continue to be classified as independent contractors for employment classification purposes. And this is in direct conflict with legislation that was passed last year, which greatly expanded the definition of employee and would have classified those drivers as employees under AB5. So we understand that the obligations of businesses to provide coverage and benefits is evolving. And so here we are in November 2020, a half a century removed from the creation of the National Commission on State Workers' Compensation Laws and the last national look at how the system is meeting its goals. And it is truly a unique time to think about the history and future of the system. And I would say that if workers' compensation transforms how it engages with labor and management, it can preserve the grand bargain and tackle the pressing challenges of today. And some of these challenges include new kinds of work and new workplaces. The last seven months have been a forced experiment on where and how work can be accomplished. This will permanently affect the workplace of the future. Workers' compensation must adapt to businesses that have less control of our physical workspace and answer questions How will we promote safety? How will courts interpret compensability? How will investigations of remote workplaces proceed? 
We also see that changes in the kind of work has changed the kinds of injuries and illnesses that arise out of work. Conversations on mental health and occupational disease are ongoing. Will workers' compensation expand coverage for these conditions? Are presumptions effective or do they unnecessarily exclude employees? And finally, a system that supports recovery. The workers' compensation system is focusing on people and not process. And that is such an encouraging trend. The next evolution in fulfilling the promise of workers' compensation is to ensure that we are aligning policy with recovery and return to work. The grand bargain is our history, and the grand bargain can be our future. If we are intentional and inclusive moving forward. I want to thank you for listening to Accidentally and this month's history lesson. The IAIABC's podcast can be downloaded on IAIABC.org slash podcast, or you can subscribe to us on iTunes. I always enjoy hearing your feedback. Until next month. Cheers, Jen.